your positive, positive, positive imprint. Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Well, hello, this is Catherine, your host of the podcast, Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people from all over the world whose positive actions are inspiring positive achievements. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. Learn more about Chris and his music at chrisknoll.com, C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint, Twitter, What's Your PI. Connect with me on LinkedIn. You can also follow me on my YouTube channel where there are a few videos, Your Positive Imprint. Check out my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, where you can sign up for email updates, learn a little bit more about the guests. You can listen to the episodes from my website as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and now Amazon Music, and all of the others. Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.? Well, recently, pre-COVID, my husband and I ventured into Kaktuvik, Alaska to find some polar bears where we could take some pictures and learn a little bit more about them in the wild. There were a few environmental happenings that prevented us from seeing any polar bears. During the time when we were stranded on Kaktuvik, we met many interesting and inspirational people. My husband and I love traveling and meeting people from all over the world. And that, again, will happen as this pandemic is temporary. And you know, the other night we were watching Love Actually. So beginning the week of Thanksgiving, we start our holiday movie run where we watch all sorts of holiday movies and continue through the new year. But one of the things that really got me this year, which, you know, in the end of a movie, it's wonderful, it's touching, but this year it was a little bit more so because the ending of the movie, they show so many hundreds of people hugging at an airport. And that just made me think of, of all of the wonderful family gatherings and friend gatherings and meeting people at the airport and train stations and hugging them and bringing them into your home and having family dinners. And and of course, all of that will happen again. This is temporary. But the movie definitely hit a very emotional string for me at the end. Well, lots of more holiday movies to come. There's Elf. There's, oh my gosh, A Christmas Story. There's just so many. My husband and I get teased because we also include Die Hard in our holiday movie run. (laughs) We love the actors. I mean, Alan Rickman and Bruce Willis, they do a great job, as well as all of the other actors and actresses. And if you have a favorite holiday movie that you'd like to share with me, please send me an email, give me the title, or drop me a line in Facebook or Instagram or even LinkedIn. And thank you so much for listening and supporting the show, Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.? What you do makes a difference, and you have to decide what kind of a difference you want to make. Jane Goodall. Well, today I want to introduce Anne M. Jensen. Anne is the only Northern Alaska full-time archaeologist at this time. She has been a front-runner in her field for over 30 years. She says that being in the field for this long, she has experienced environmental changes. Ice preserves bones and artifacts, but when the ice melts, that's it. Those remains are part of the sea, and basically, she says, our history is melting. Anne, so tell us about your imprint. 
what are some of the experiences that affected you, but also in turn affected well, I suppose probably most of them revolve in some way or another around archaeology, particularly in Alaska. I've worked on the North Slope for, oh goodness, 30-some years now, doing archaeology first mostly around Wainwright and then more recently around Gavik, which is what community formerly known as Barrow. Since 1997... I've worked for the Barrow Village Corporation, and now they're subsid- their science subsidiary. So I've been fortunate enough that I've been able to get research grants to do research that also had met goals that, that the community had. For example, for a number of years we were working on a, a, a cemetery. The community of, of Utkiavik basically was formed by the residents of two communities. There used to be, actually at the beginning at least, a much bigger village out at the very tip of Point Barrow called Nuvok. And then there was Utkiavik proper, which is more or less where the town of Barrow now is. And so for our listeners, can you give them an idea of where Barrow might be (laughs) when they look at a map of Alaska? So if you look at a map of Alaska, say if you take your, imagine making your hand and sticking your thumb down and your pointer finger kind of out and to the left. That kind of is a map of Alaska. Well, Barrow is all the way at the top, and Nuvuk is literally all the way at the top. It is the farthest north point in the continental, not only the continental United States, but in the continent of North America. Oh, so goodness, so way up north. It's way up north. Must be colder than it is here, no? Not necessarily. There's water on both sides, so it, it I think, ameliorates it a little bit, and there's a, a fairly good flow of water coming up through the Bering Strait, which I think has been pretty warm this year. So it's probably a little bit warmer there right now, it seems like, but it's been a cold summer. So we don't get quite as bad wind as as Kuktovic does either. I mean, they seem to get another extra 10 miles an hour on storms, blizzards, and whatnot. I think maybe because the mountains are very close here compared to Barrow. They're hundreds of miles away. You can't even see them. So there, so it's got a lot of room to spread out. Yeah. Okay, and then I so joyfully interrupted you so that the listeners can get an idea of where you're at. So we're back so, at the cemetery. Yes, yeah, so so there used to be a village, as I, was, as I said, and it eventually got amb- abandoned because there were lots of attractive things. The school was built in Barrow. The church was in Barrow. The, the minister, who was also the school teacher, was also a doctor. The best trading post, Charlie Browers, was in Barrow. So, you know, if you had school kids, whatever, you people started moving there. So the two communities basically became one, and, and they all wound up shareholders in one corporation when when they did the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. So the point has been eroding at least since the 1850s, probably the 1800 or earlier, just based on oral histories and, and British explorers' accounts and whatnot. So the whole village had actually been seen a little bit by archaeologists but was eroding and people thought it was pretty recent so they kind of ignored it and then somebody reported human remains eroding out one day so they called the cops they called us as as UIC and they called I think the Inupiat History Language and Culture 
commission, which is part of the North Slope Borough, and we all went out, and indeed there were human remains, and they were indeed archaeological, so it was not a case for the cops. I mean, this person had died long before there was a state of Alaska, so and they didn't look particularly murdered anyway. So, so anyway, we wound up deciding to recover them because it was coming up on the 4th of July weekend. We were afraid they were going to get washed away or damaged, but... And that particular individual had some grave goods, which were very early. It was, you know, quite a shock. It was clear this was not somebody who was, you know, from right around the time of contact. It was somebody who was from about 1,000 A.D. or actually they dated oh a little gosh. earlier. So, wow. that, but at the time, because of what, you know, I hadn't really been researching it. And so I, I thought it was more, maybe it was just a guy that, you know, got was traveling and, and died and had to be buried and... You know, he wound up there. And then the next year there was another person, and then the next year there was another one, and uh, another one. At that point it was like, okay, this is not, this is an awful lot of dead people just, you know, happened to kick the bucket right here and need to be buried. I, I don't <laughs> think that's what, you know, this is what's the same not, time frame? Well, the others didn't have death? nearly as many grave goods, so, and we weren't radiocarbon dating them. I didn't have funding, really. We were just doing the recoveries, you know. We had all kinds of other contracts. I started looking for research money. I first got something called a Education Through Cultural and Historical Organizations grant that ran through the North Slope Borough. And uh, so I was able to hire a lot of local students, and we did a lot of testing and found there was a whole bunch of graves. And we also had been keeping track of the erosion just for that brief period of time, and I started doing some research on the whole place. And it was clear that the erosion was happening much more quickly than anybody realized and going much faster. So we got this grant and we, you know, started doing a very thorough systematic testing program and recovering all these individuals. And then somewhere along in there, I can't remember whether we'd gotten the NSF funding or not. By that point, I went for some more NSF funding. So I was able to add non-local students, you know, some grad students and whatnot. And I also got together with Dennis O'Rourke, who's a bioarchaeologist who does ancient DNA in his lab and uh, does it very ethically not I wouldn't work with any just any lab anyway he came up and talked to the community and you know and they actually were quite interested in seeing how these people were related to them and whatnot and and they also were interested in having him pursue modern studies so anyway all that he got a great big grant to do all that so that was nice before we started excavating, we spent a lot of time talking to the, the elders and explaining what the situation was. And a few of them were like, oh, we want to leave the people where they are. And, you know, then someone else said, but we're listening to her. It's, it's, it's eroding. It's going away. She can't leave them where they are. They're going to fall in the water. And she can't put any of the ones back they've already got because it's not there anymore. So after, <laughs> after, after that, that was kind of the end of, you know, that they, they agreed that that really wasn't it. You know, my my take on it really was that it was very difficult to bury people you know they had a shoulder blade modified seal shoulder blade or wall or shoulder blade tied to a stick and they're trying to dig in gravel and it's so hard to dig that we did one reburial before we realized how bad the erosion was out there we we actually just reburied the people in what we thought was a safe place and you know something so fast that people pretty much had to keep digging during the ceremony so obviously this is not easy so you wouldn't do this if it was just as good to be in the ocean because they lived right by the ocean i mean it was you know a matter of 
100 yards and they could put them on the ice or in the water and if that was just as good as being buried in land. Well, that's not what they did. So presumably their preference was for a grave and they had a certain style of grave and they, you know, more or less grave goods, but, you know, they, they clearly had a... Anyway, so people thought they should be, be, be you know, reburied. The elders decided the grave goods should be kept so students could learn from them. They shouldn't just be reburied with the purse. And what were some of the goods that you found um, that you recovered? Well, mostly, mostly. And the, the first, the first fellow had a lot of hunting kit, bola weights and harpoon heads and part of a composite knife and, and wound pins and float plugs and, you know, an assortment of things. A lot of the other people had maybe a harpoon head or, you know, a couple things that he had by far the most material culture it looks like it it sort of goes there's always a few people who have more stuff in, in any group but it also appears that it, as people move forward in time they didn't put as many things in the grave with them somehow their thoughts on that changed so and i think a lot of the earlier graves probably were there and just earlier archaeologists didn't really pay much attention to them the other thing that appears to have happened based on the one house tunnel we were able to excavate before, once we realized that, you know, they're actually, the village was a little older and, you know, something should be done. It looks like as the, the point eroded, probably people moved their houses. And, you know, the, the typical pattern is that the village is close to the water, you know, reasonably close to the water. I mean, you don't want it down there where every storm is gonna drown your house, but, but reasonably close to the water so you're not having to make a two mile hike to go hunting every day or to even start out, and then the graves are higher ground inland, you know, behind. And so as the point eroded and the houses started eroding, obviously they had to move the houses inland, and so, and the graves' markers didn't stay in place, and so eventually they, you know, wound up putting a house in an unmarked grave, and that probably happened a number of times. So some of the earlier graves may not have been very intact anyway, but we were able to about close to parts of 100 individuals. We didn't always get a complete wow. individual. You know, there were cases where it looks like the grave had been damaged, had been run over, it had some, you know, because there had been a lot of vehicular traffic. A couple of them were, you know, maybe some animal got, got in, you know, and, and did what they would do. And then there was one grave that just had a person's upper arm bone in it. It was a very nicely made grave too, but it was that was kind of a mystery to everybody. We could have kind of understood if it had been, you know, a hand or a foot. You could have imagined it getting, you know, cut off, you know, got caught in a, a line hunting or something, and you know, they buried it. I don't know, but how do you just get this part of a person? Because <laughs> I mean, it didn't have any, you know, bite marks or anything. It wasn't like it was all that was left behind from a bear. So it was very very odd. I mean, we were kind of expecting an infant burial given the size of it, and it wasn't until we, you know, finished excavating it that, lo and behold, it was, a, it was a humorous. So that was that. So we were able to do that. We were able to work with some museums and, and help with repatriation. Now that's a great imprint for society. 
Aww. At this point, we talked about the ice, but didn't have time to dive into climate change or more of her positive imprints with regard to the reburial of Inupiat ancestors, as well as her positive research with learning more about the ways of life of those who came before us. Well, you can learn more about Anne M. Jensen's research from her website, iceandtime.net. Don't forget to hit that subscribe or follow button now on your podcast platform. It's free. And don't let our history melt. Activate your positive imprint. Your positive imprint. What's your P.I.?